you have a copy of God's Word, could you turn please to Luke 21, the Gospel of Luke 21. I couldn't help but have something of a, a nervous chuckle to myself that on the same Lord's Day, I would have to prepare perhaps the most contended passage in the entire book of Hebrews, as well as the most contended passage in the entire book of Luke for the same Lord's Day. And I thought, this is, <laughs> this is certainly not how I would have planned it, but so it is. And so you have to keep your, your Bibles open when you come to passages like this. You come to sections like Hebrews 8, as we looked at this morning, and Luke 21, where we are this evening. Just as again, as you're, you're finding your place and settling, um, continue to pray, especially for Mrs. Pinkston. I was last there on Friday evening, and um, that was... Uh, First time where she, she seemed to be awake. Uh, she awake, was there for 45, 50 minutes, thereabouts, maybe close to an hour actually. Um, and she was, she was awake for about five minutes where she was able to look at me. She was trying to say something, but um, not really able to say anything that I, at least I could make out. But uh, continue to pray much for her, that the Lord will bless the attention, the therapy that she's receiving, as well as just his hand would be upon uh, her body to recover her. There's a day coming when there's no more hospital visits. No more. That'll be a good day. I don't know if we dwell on it as much as we ought, that even what we've just been singing, that looking up and longing for the Lord to hasten, as it were, His return. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And living in such comfort as we do, I think that blinds us, certainly obscures our vision to the anticipation that believers should possess. Well, we come to Luke 21, and we want to pick up where we left off last time. We got as far as verse 24, so we're looking at verse 25 and following. And here we have what is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. It's not as extensive as Matthew's account, and Luke has his, his own uh, particular leanings in, in the way he records it. But the essence of the message is here contained that it might afford encouragement, especially to Gentile believers. You see that in verse 24, the anticipation of the times of the Gentiles. This is a time in which there will be great advance in the kingdom through Gentile regions, and they will even provoke eventually, Jews, and there will be then an gathering laterally of ethnic Jews as well, but they anticipate this time. And of course, again, in, in this, this particular occasion when our Lord is speaking, really there could not have been in the minds of His hearers, even His disciples, any thought of the advance of the kingdom to the degree that it was about to unfold and what the times of the Gentiles would entail. There's no possible way they could have envisaged, even with all the, the prophetic um, depictions of what was to come in Isaiah and other places about the advancement that would go, go to the, the isles and to the far-off nations. But they could never have envisaged what happened and what we presently now are, uh, we have benefited from the advance of the gospel to the nations. We should be in some kind of paganism, being most of us from nations that are Gentile. We should just be left in the darkness of our ignorance 
And God mercifully has brought the truth across the world, and yet there are many other places still to receive the truth as we were praying just a little while ago. So we're going to read from verse 25, Luke 21, verse 25, reading through to the end of the chapter. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory." When these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell in the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to, to him in the temple for to hear him. Amen. We'll end the reading. There, this is the very Word of God. This was spoken by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, recorded for us by the Spirit of God. You are to receive it and believe it as the very Word of God. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this portion and we are aware of its challenges and though we may not always perfectly get the details straight, yet we ask we'll not miss the overarching message. We pray that Thou wilt give us clarity and again help that the proclamation of Thy Word would not be in vain. Thou hast given this passage for our profit, and I pray that men would receive it that Thou wilt be pleased to bless it to us all. Forgive our sins and encourage us to understand from this passage the great comfort it is to be a Christian. Should there be some here yet outside of Christ, have mercy on them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've indicated already, last week we gave consideration to uh, verses 5 through 24, where we sought to make it clear, at least I hope, that the thrust of that passage is dealing with something that we know historically took place, the fall of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem is one of those events that stands out in all of the history of humanity. And instead of using the words and all the warning of what was to come to put fear and instill anxiety in the hearts of believers, we sought to see from this passage the Lord was seeking to comfort His people. Even though there were these turbulent things that were about to take place right there on their own turf, so to speak, they were not to be concerned. Look at verse 9. When ye shall hear of wars and commotions, now what, now what are we told today? Wars and rumors of wars, and we're told to be worried and concerned about these things. But this is uttered with reference to Jerusalem, specifically spoken in that context. And even with these rumors, with what was being noised abroad or with what they would anticipate the Lord says is going to happen with civil uprisings and so on, be 
not terrified. You will not go far if you start listening to people who focus on details concerning the Lord's return before you will stumble across those who will utter things like, this is, this is a fearful time and we should be afraid, or other language that would seem to encourage or instill anxiety. Our Lord Jesus does the opposite. He encourages them, don't be terrified. Don't be fearful. Don't be anxious. He goes on then to say, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. There are things that are going to happen. This world is a fallen world. It's under a curse. The whole of creation groans, we're told in Romans 8. And essentially what the Lord says is you're going to see evidence of that, this groaning world. It's under a curse before that all comes to an end, before that is all tied up and brought to a conclusion. You can expect there to be things like this. There would be, however, an uptick of sovereignly dispensed signs that would help give indication of what was to happen to Jerusalem. So we're told in verse 10, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. What are these fearful sights? What are these indications? Again, we refer to Josephus last week, the Jewish historian who gives us tremendous first-hand insight into these times and this period. He actually deals with, makes reference to certain signs, even in the heavens, as it were, that occurred. He records this, Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers and such as belied God Himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated, without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. Thus there was a star resembling a sword which stood over the city and a comet that continued a whole year." I don't know what studies have been done by experts regarding whether they can look back and give indications of such things actually occurring, whether the pattern of things, I know there's reference to Halley's Comet and other things that do come up in relation to this and the study of this, but he gives account of that, and more to the point, our authority comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, who said there's going to be signs, and these signs in the heavens these, these indications that, again, judgment is coming. Verse 13, even though these disciples are going to be persecuted, yet it's going to be an opportunity for them to make use of that. It's going to be a platform to preach the gospel. And so it is important for the disciples not to be discouraged by whatever it is they face. The Lord is going to use even the hardship of these days to advance His cause. And then there's going to come an indication that the destruction of Jerusalem has arrived. And so verse 20 says, when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And again, we said last week that uh, of all the people who were destroyed and killed in the midst of this, this, this attack, the siege and the destruction of the Roman army against Jerusalem, you have 1.1 million Jews killed, close to 100,000 taken as slaves are used for sport, and yet it is recorded historically the Jewish Christians escaped. And they escaped because they took heed to what the Savior had taught them. And I underline that because it is important for you to take heed to what the Savior teaches to hear Him and have your life ordered by Him because there's no escaping the judgment that comes on those that think lightly or act carelessly in relation to the things that He has said. One of the challenges of this chapter, of course, 
is when you come to the latter half, you come to verse 25 and following, and you have those that understand clearly that the context here leading up to verse 25 has addressed Jerusalem and the fall of the city. And then they come to verse 25 and following, and they see that continuing in the same theme. And there are certain reasons why they see that. So, of course, you, just to look at verse 27, where you have this um, reference to the coming of the Son of Man, coming in a cloud with power and great glory, you might say, well, it's obvious then that this is His future return. It's the Lord Jesus returning in power to bring to an end all things. But then you have verse 32 following that, where it says, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. And they see then the connection. They say, well, He has got continuing on in this theme. He's made reference to the fact that this coming of, of the Son of Man and then this generation won't pass until these things that have been mentioned previously are fulfilled. Now, that's part of the challenge. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that I have all the answers. I don't. Men have debated over this passage for years, and they're going to keep debating until the Lord comes and it all falls out exactly as He has purposed. That will be the final kind of answer to everything when it all unfolds before our very eyes. Until then, men will still be debating. I half wonder whether as it unfolds, we'll still be debating as to exactly what's going on and how it's going to fall out. The issue I have with trying to make verses 25 and following fit into the judgment upon Jerusalem. Well, aside from the language and what is said in verse 25 and the, the, the commotion that is going on in the heavens, aside from that, and I know there's answers or at least uh, attempts to answer some of that, aside from all of that, is the language of the end. Verse 9 gives us indication, the end is not by and by. Now, the disciples are wondering how everything is going to unfold. Part of that deals with the fall of Jerusalem and God's judgment upon Israel, and part of that looks towards a future consummation, what's going to happen at the end. And so, as all these things are unfolding, and it's, it's leading up to, he says, the destruction of Jerusalem, but he puts this in, the end is not by and by. And so, there must be in this address, I, I, I submit to you, there must be in this address a dealing with the end. Now then, the question might arise, well, well, the end could be the end of Israel, the end of Jerusalem as it was. But the Scripture is very clear about how the use of the term the end is meant to be understood. Go to Matthew 24, and you may have to turn there a couple of times this evening. Matthew 24, and this is where you have Matthew's account, but I just want you to see this, this idea of the end and how it's used within this very context and how, uh, how Matthew uses it. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations and then shall the end come. Again, I know there are arguments that say this happened prior to fall of Jerusalem, so on and so forth. But it seems to me to point to something far more extensive than what happened, even with the tremendous advance of the gospel. And it was. There's no denying. The advance of the gospel from the, the cross work and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the fall of Jerusalem is, is undeniable. It's, it's utterly amazing. When you start charting how far we know the disciples reached, how far the gospel went, it is quite staggering. And yet at the same time, this, this language points to something greater. It points to something yet to unfold. The end. The end is when all nations have come under the influence of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'll not turn there, but you, you may know the passage well. 1 Corinthians 15 is dealing with the resurrection and proceeds to uh, give us indication with how all things will come to the end. And it uses the term in that way, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then cometh the end. 
when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority, authority and power. So in the use of the end, I see, and I can't help but see, that you're dealing with something that brings you to the end. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the terminus. It's, it's the consummation. It is the end. And the fall of Jerusalem is not the end. Christ is coming back to bring an end to this entire world. And I submit to you then that that is what is picked up in Luke 21, verse 25 and following. I've titled this message, and I obviously could have given it any title, but Why You Must Watch and Pray. Why You Must Watch and Pray. Because it, it does tie up, not only dealing with the coming of the Lord, but it also ties up with, with just a summary generally, of the things that he has already addressed. And whether it was you were living in that time with anticipating the fall of Jerusalem, or you live beyond that, and you're looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes to every professing believer that they be people who watch and pray. That's what verse 36 says. Watch ye therefore and pray always. There is no room for backsliding. There's no room for careless living. There's no room for taking a vacation spiritually. There is no room for that. You endanger your soul when you think lightly of the way in which we are called to live for the Lord. This is serious business, and so we must watch and pray. In dealing with that, see, first of all, the second coming. Second of all, the summarized conclusion and then the sober caution. The second coming, the summarized conclusion, and the sober caution. And I'm doing my best here. I, I, I freely admit that you may have questions I will not address, and you may have things that you'll say, but what about, and I may have to say, I don't know. I am doing my best with the passage, being as honest as I can be. And I have given, I trust, some insight into why we should see verses 25 and following as the Lord dealing with what is yet future. The second coming, verse 25, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now, you might say, well, is that what, not what was said already in verse 11? The signs in the heavens are different than signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And upon the earth, distress of nations, plural, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Verse 26, man's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. I want to note something really important here that you, if, it would be easy to miss. The distinction, there's one very clear distinction between what leads up to the fall of Jerusalem and what leads up to the return of Jesus Christ. And it is this, in all the preliminary things that are detailed leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, you have things that are being unfolding over years, literally years, basically from the time that our Lord ascends, you have, of course, the immediate persecution of the disciples that is addressed in verse 12, before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you, and so on. So, you have, you have that as an indication of what's to come. You have other things that are all unfolding, and it happens over years. I mean, the, the conflict begins between the Roman armies and Jerusalem in AD 66, it doesn't fall until AD 70. So even in the, the, the kind of driving at the heart of the, the immediate sort of uh, revelation of judgment upon Israel, you, you, have, you have that taking time. It takes time. But what you have from verse 25 and following are things that all happen basically in conjunction with His return. These signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth... Uh, upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, 
the sea and the waves roaring, and of course you can understand that if the, if the, the very sun, of course the moon, is being affected by the return of Christ, it's affecting the waves, it's affecting the seas and how they function, we know that. And immediately of men's hearts failing them for fear, looking after those things which are coming on the earth, the powers of heaven shall be shaken, then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That is compressed, compressed. When you read through the New Testament and you look at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an event that is very compressed. He comes, and yes, there are particulars with regard to His coming, but when He comes, it's, it's, that's really it. I mean, it just all kind of happens very suddenly. You don't have the opportunity like the Christian, the Jewish Christians had to see the armies compassing Jerusalem and pack up their things, or they're told not even to do that, but to get out. They, do, they have time for that. They do, we don't have time for that here. This is all happening in a, in a compressed way, and it strikes fear into men, but it doesn't convert them. Their hearts fail them for fear, but they are not converted. What follows the return of Christ when they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, when that happens is what occurs or what is mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in John 5. And in John 5, He speaks of a resurrection. When He returns, in John 5, 27, this speaks of the Father having given to the Son authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. The Lord returns. He returns once, and everything just all happens. Now, again, there's a calling from the graves. There are those that are alive and remain, that are caught up to be with Him in the air. There are details like that. But he returns. And I want you to see what, what, what happens. Go to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. Because in his return, there is the dealing with both God's people and the unregenerate. He doesn't come and deal with just his own people. He doesn't come and just deal with the, the unregenerate. He comes to deal with all. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. Find rest in this. Find peace in this. You who are being troubled, being persecuted, you that are being afflicted for your loyalty to Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe. You see the difference? Saints immediately are encouraged. They are going to marvel, and a sense of worship and adoration is going to draw out of their hearts with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the account of Luke, men are fearful. The unbelieving are fearful, and rightly so. This passage tells you why they're fearful. The unsettling of all the, the sun and the moon and the, the kind of the fabric of creation which and its groaning comes to this ahead of, of great unsettling, they are going to be faced with something that is frightening. The one that they have denied, the one that they have refused to bow the knee to, the one that they have rejected and perhaps even blasphemed against. He is going to come in power, yes, for the blessing of His people, but to exercise judgment upon those that know not God and obey not the gospel. You pair those things together. There are people out there that will tell you, I know God, I'm spiritual. 
They'll have some kind of language which will indicate that they have some loyalty to God, however they understand God. But this is clear. Paul, under inspiration, says that you, you don't know God if you have not obeyed the gospel. There is a response to the good news demanded of all men. The message goes out, making it clear. According to your understanding of your own heart, you can't be perfect, you can't be holy, you can't find acceptance before God, but there is good news. God so loved the world, He gave His Son, He came as substitute for sinners, He lived in perfect obedience to the Father, He offered Himself without spot upon the cross, He rose again from the dead, and through Him we have life, we have salvation. And those who receive Him wait for His appearing. Look for it, anticipating it, desiring it. But he comes once to deal with all men. Again, you may have particular ideas about how this all unfolds. I'm not here to get into all the, the weeds of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he, but he comes. He deals with all men and is coming. It's not coming to rapture away his people and leave us all here. You're not going to see the, the, the bumper sticker where you know, should the rapture unfold, you know, this, this vehicle will be unmanned or whatever. Someone was telling me there's a bumper sticker relating to that that I've not seen, but I am sure it's out there. But that's not going to happen. There's not going to be this whisking away of God's people and all, we're all looking around wondering, you know, where, where's everyone gone? Christ returns once to address what's necessary regarding his own people and those who are not believers. This will be a terrifying sight. Go back to Luke 21. As we've noted, men's hearts will fail them for fear. They don't know where to turn, what to do, and they're not going to even have any opportunity and the powers of heaven are shaken, and they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Christ will come. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draweth nigh. It's here. It's here what you have waited for, what Christ said He would do, comes to pass. So that's the second coming. Then we have a summarized conclusion, a summarized conclusion, verse 29. And He spake to them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, and ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand, so likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. There is first here in this summarized conclusion, and I, I think that's the idea that's going on here. He's taking now a parable to summarize the, the whole idea, especially with regard to his people. His people can relate to this. Again, parables, parables, God's people are able to understand them. The unbeliever, things are kept hidden from them. But they're able to understand what is being said here. And in this, there is first the anticipation of his coming, in this summary, and the assurance of his predictions. The anticipation of his coming and the assurance of his predictions. Verse 29 in the parable, you have the anticipation of his coming. The point of these verses is to indicate that just as observant men are not surprised by the arrival of summer, so believers are not surprised by the return of Christ, by the things that He has addressed and said are going to happen. Whether it be even the judgment of Jerusalem, but more particularly, I think, what He has just addressed, His return. They are not going to be surprised by this. It's not going to overwhelm them. They're not going to be wondering what's happened here. Now, you have this underlined in Scripture for us. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5.
1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, in contrast with what it is like to be an unbeliever in those times, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You know, you know, you know that summer's coming. You're paying attention. And you know that he's going to arrive. So the man who is aware that a thief is about to come to his home is not going to be taken in some sudden experience. He's looking for it. He's waiting for it. And Paul says, you believers, you know this. You know he's coming. And so though it comes with suddenness, and note that, verse 3, people are saying, don't worry, don't be concerned, everything's fine, everything's well. Then sudden destruction. Then sudden destruction. This is not to God's people. This is to those who aren't ready. This is to those who, again, in the second epistle, as we read, that Know not God and obey not the gospel. It comes as sudden destruction. They aren't expecting it. They're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and living their lives as if they have all the time in the world and as if the language of the Lord Jesus concerning future judgment is not going to happen, or at least not in their lifetime. But he underlines, ye brethren are not in darkness. You're not in darkness. You know summer's coming, to use the language of the parable. You're aware. You've been given the warnings. You know to keep your eye on what's about to unfold. You'll not be caught out. Now, if you go back to Luke 21, fig tree, all the trees, the ship forth, Summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. You know this. And just to underline, the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. It's in other parts of the gospel, he has said the kingdom of God is within you and the kingdom of God is, is, is here. But now he's, he's pushing it forward into the future. And this is where we talk about, again, we mentioned it this morning, the kind of already not yet idea, that there are certain things that we possess, but not in the full expression that will one day come to pass. So again, even our enjoyment of all the fullness of Christ's salvation, what we have here now has an already experience of forgiveness of sins and pardon and power to live and so on, but there's a not yet experience in which we Again, the, the curse is gone, our sins are gone, the, any form of veil of not being able to see the glory of Christ is gone, we have a fuller experience yet to come. Well, the kingdom of God is the same. And so I just, I just caution you, I caution you concerning having a, an over-realized expectation of the kingdom of God in this world. I believe that the kingdom of God is, is like leaven, and it's going to keep doing its leavening influence. It's going to advance into the corners of the globe. It's going to do what Jesus said, that until all nations have been touched with the gospel, he's not going to return. That's going to happen. It's leaven. There's going to be this increasing growth in the kingdom. Does that mean all are going to be saved? No, that's not my point. But all tribes and people and tongues and nations are going to be found in glory. And so there's going to be this ongoing advance of the gospel through the ages until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even with that, we're not going to have any utopia here now, am I for voting in God-fearing people when it comes to election? Sure, it would be folly to say otherwise. 
Am I for God-fearing people even making themselves available to stand in office and name the name of Christ and carry through His Word in public office? Absolutely. Am I for Christians making their community better, being light in this world, and thus using their gifting and using what they have to advance the cause of Christ locally where they are? Absolutely. Am I for people endeavoring to make this world better rather than worse through medical care, through adoption, through caring for orphans, and through whatever any community needs? Definitely. Yet there will never be any utopia here. There will not be a utopia. The kingdom of God is coming in terms of its full experience. We read of it this morning in Revelation 21. It's going to change everything. So much of our experience we can't even begin to comprehend. You don't know what life is like without the curse. You could spend your life trying to imagine an experience without the curse and you will still, though you spend your life imagining what that might look like, you will not come close. Your entire experience is weighed down by the burden of a fallen world. The creation groans and so do we. There's no escaping the sorrows. There's no avoiding the heartbreak. There's no getting away. You can't make a utopia here. This is where we labor. We labor to the extent that God gifts and enables us. We do our best. Like David, we serve our generation. He can't do anything for Israel in the future except serve his generation, laying a foundation and hoping that things will be carried on positively after he is gone. We are to do the same. But our best efforts, oh, do we not see it? Do you not sometimes read through the book of Judges and just lament? I read that book sometimes. It's the most heartbreaking book in the entire Bible. Because here are people who've been so favored. They've come out of slavery. They've been so favored with Moses' leadership and Joshua following. These men of God laying a foundation, giving them hope for a better future. And by the end of the book, and it's been gradually deteriorating as you go on, by the end of the book, they're warring against one another. They're creating, they're committing horrific acts against women. And other things, I mean, it is, it is, the mind reads it and you say, how has this happened? A fallen world. The kingdom of God, when we sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, will be a very different experience. So, the anticipation of His coming, the assurance of His predictions. In this summary, these verses, there is also the assurance of His predictions. In verse 32, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. This is one of the more challenging verses. It looks like everything proceeding, again, is pointing to this generation here and now. There are different ways of taking this. There are ways of understanding in terms of, again, a summary, that what he has been saying here, there's kind of a pulling together of whether you're living at the time of the apostles and anticipating living through the destruction of Jerusalem, or whether you're there at the time of the Lord's return, each of those generations will see the words of Christ come to pass. Now, in reading it, if you go to Matthew 24 again, I said we'd need to turn back there. If you turn back to Matthew 24, 
Because initially when I was reading through this, I thought, well, you know, I can, I can break this up. I mean, you can see how this generation, again, will function as a summary statement tracking back to, in other words, having dealt with his return, then he goes back to deal with what he had previously said in the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's going back there and saying, again, just kind of summarizing what I've said will come to pass in this generation. It's a little difficult, though. If you go to Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 30. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth mourn. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is what we've addressed already in Luke 21. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. Does this sound familiar? When his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Right? And expect these things to come to pass. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Here you see what I mean in terms of an intertwining of the summaries. Because that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, is pointing to, and even what follows, as in the days of Noah, it's pointing future. It's pointing to the future. As indicating in terms of the Lord's return. And so you have that. This is clear because, again, all the language regarding Jerusalem is giving clear indication that they can give an idea. They will be able to have a good idea. The other side of it is the contrast, and I can't push this too far, but there is a contrast between those days and that day. Because in the addressing of Jerusalem and what they happen, it happens over, as I say, a period of time. And the language refers to it as days, those days. Again, look at verse 19. Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. That's over a period of time. But that day is a specific thing. It's the return of Christ. It's distinct. So I don't have it all resolved in terms of how best to look at this, except that there is a, a pulling together of a summary of both of these things. And the Lord is driving home the point regarding the fact that his word will be fulfilled. You see that then in verse 33, back in Luke 21, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. He's telling them that what I have said will happen will occur. And the generations that live, when it unfolds, they will see it. And they will be able to testify to the fact that these ha things happened as I said. Having a mindset and here's where I say to you, again, you can get lost in the weeds with some of this. And men have debated, men of brilliance and eminence, men of massive IQs and storehouse of knowledge where they have forgotten more than any of us here in this room are likely to ever learn in our lives, have differed. But we keep that in balance. But... We can't miss, and this is what we sometimes do. We get into the weeds about how this is going to unfold, what this verse is saying, and we miss the driving thrust. Jesus is calling people to pay attention to his words. The very heaven and earth will pass, but not my word. My word is more sure than the rising and setting of the sun. My word is more sure than any of the unfolding of things that happen in this world. These things that seem so certain, they are not as certain as my word. The one thing you can depend upon is my word. And so this brings us back to priorities, doesn't it? How do we live our lives? Who, who influences how we live? What, what voices are we listening to when we wake up in the morning? To whom do we give our attention? What books do we read? What, what forms of entertainment do we pour ourselves into? What are our hopes and dreams? What are our aspirations? What are we giving our life to? 
Does the word of Christ govern our lives? Because he is laying this out clearly and he's making it plain. The only thing certain is my word. The only thing. Make sure, make sure you're not just drifting through life, ignoring the one thing that is certain. Finally, the sober caution, the sober caution. Verse 34 and following. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, for as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Here again you see this language that seems to indicate something that's going to occur across the nations, across the whole earth. No one's going to escape it. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Very quickly, looking at these verses in this sober caution. The sober caution is first against careless living. Careless living. He is, he is opposing, pushing back against careless living. Now let me ask you before I even read the verse again. Do you have a tendency to become careless in your living? We're related, you and I. So I know that you're like me. And the tendency to carelessness is a dominant feature of our lives. I'm not talking about just a, like carelessness in, in vague areas or different areas. You might say you're strong here or someone's weak there. I'm talking about just a general carelessness towards spiritual things and the things that really matter. And our Lord pushes back against careless living. He says, take heed to yourselves. It means give attention. Focus your mind, guard, be aware, take care. And to what? To whom? To yourselves. The same language that Paul uses when he stands before the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock. Begin with yourselves, brethren. And so it is to all God's people. The example for the elder is to be spread among everyone. That every Christian takes heed first to himself. Isn't it amazing how interested we can be in other people's lives, in the rise and fall of their life, of their ministry, of their church, of, of their financial success and careers and so on, where we maybe wish them well, or maybe the opposite, we wish their downfall. God, forgive us. I mean, this, this such interest in other people. Jesus said, don't fall into that trap. Stop focusing on everyone else. Take heed to yourselves. Look at your own heart. Look at your own life. Pour more attention into you than into others. It's amazing how much time is given to Googling people, Googling what's going on, how little time we give to studying ourselves. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time, any time. In other words, you have to be vigilant. Be vigilant, always on guard, always aware, paying attention. Anytime your hearts be overcharged, that is overburdened, heavy, weighed down, overloaded, with surfeiting, drunkenness, and cares of this life. These three things, I don't have to say very much here, but that surfeiting is the idea of, of being lighthearted, being frivolous, being silly, being giddy, immature. And there are consequences to living that way, aren't there? We see it. I mean, parents, you know it. You know it when you see, you see a child and they're growing up and they're still behaving in this immature, childlike fashion where they can't be depended upon. They're, they're, it's like, they're 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and they're still dealing, they're still acting like they're 11, 12, 13. You have to mature. You have to progress, right? There has to be development. You have to, and you're thinking and the, the taking on responsibility and not being so frivolous. I know this world wants you to take life lightly and not be so serious or so... But, but here, it, the Lord's warning the opposite. When you burden yourself, you, you, you overcharge, you burden yourself with frivolous things. 
He's saying, don't do that. Life's too short, too serious to be living that way. Drunkenness. Drunkenness comes with it all sorts of things, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's a general thing that people giving themselves to drunkenness, it opens the door to all sorts of activity that is destructive to the individual, to his spouse or her spouse, to the family, to the community. There's massive consequences of living, of taking lightly alcohol and its effect upon people. You start asking people, at what point are you drunk? They're exercising their liberties and they want to say that it's okay to drink. And I'm not about to go up and to start arguing here that, that all wine in all contexts is sinful. I'm not about to say that. But, but at what point, at what point are you drunk? Because you say you can have that glass or two and yet can you get into your car? I, I know of Christian communities. Well, if the police only turned up at a wedding event, they would be, they, they would, They'd be writing tickets all night long. There's Christians going to weddings and they're drinking one, two, three glasses or whatever, and then they get into the car and they drive home. This happens regularly. Jesus warns against this kind of careless behavior and the things that go with it. Because if you're not fit to judge in driving, are you fit to judge in terms of moral things? Are you able to retain the integrity of your life and your living. Now, you may imagine you are, but I've seen it. I've, I, I, I grew up around it. It is devastating. And Jesus warns against it. It indulges in lust. It removes moral restraints. Dulls the mind to responsibility. It's amazing what happens when even one or two glasses of wine begin to intoxicate the body. And the cares of this life, again, overburdened with the cares of this life, burdened with a desire for more, thinking about this life, concerned about this life, stock markets, and you know, just the, the, the stuff of life. I mean, there, there's a practical side of it. I'm not saying that there isn't an element. He's warning here, stop, don't, don't be overburdened by this. Why? Because this isn't the end. This is, this is not it. Your life is not found in the substance of, of these things. Lay up not treasure on earth, but in heaven. Don't be so burdened by these things, so concerned. These are dangers. And so Peter warns in 1 Peter 4, the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness Lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. When they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. People looking on and saying, why don't you do these things anymore? Why don't you go to these big parties and engage in this behavior? You used to. You have to look at the people that you work with and you say, I can't, I can't, I, this is too serious. Look what Jesus says. That day may come upon you unawares. You're not ready. Time is gone. Let me just finish. The sober caution is against careless living. It's also towards godly living. He wants you to live godly. Verse, verse 36, I'll just read verse 35. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. This is going to come to all. They're living in this careless way. And it's going to come as a snare. It's going to capture them just as it does an animal. And they will have no escape. Verse 36, though, he pushes positively. Watch ye therefore and pray always. Watch ye therefore and pray always. Oh, Christian, take that to heart. I titled my message that because if you take nothing else away, take that away. Jesus is saying because of the uncertainty of the future, because of imminent judgment, because of what's going to happen, and my word, nothing will stop it. Watch ye therefore and pray always. We learned already in Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Because they watched. And everyone else was not. They were watching. 
Paul warns in 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Watch ye therefore and pray always. Why? That you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Worthy to escape. In other words, my people are marked by certain behavior. And it will be clear. God will graciously enable them to escape. They'll be counted worthy. Why? Because they prioritize Christ. They live for His glory. They want to honor Him. His words matter to them. They listen. These words come as like, I need these stumped in my heart, Lord. Don't let me ever forget them. Don't let me listen to the voices of this world. They want to be enraptured and enveloped in all of this language so that in their love for Christ, they are preserved and counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That is, being able to stand clothed in perfect righteousness with a life that does not contradict the testimony. Let me ask you, does your life coincide with your testimony? Christ is coming back. We don't dwell on it half often enough. And it is going to be a harvest day like no other. People that we imagined were safe will be found lost. People we thought are lost may be found in the end safe. But take heed to yourselves. Look to yourselves. Search your own heart. In what way does the return of Christ govern how you decide? Things are before you from one day to the next. God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. In just a moment, we'll join together and I hope that all of you would be able to join with us downstairs. There's certainly plenty of food for every one of us here. When that happens, all the, the chatter will take place. And while there's no problem with that, it does become a problem if the Lord is dealing with you and you haven't responded to him. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you in Christ? Are you a child of God? Are your sins forgiven? Are you ready? If not, and you need some help, you can let me know, but even where you are, Call upon the Lord. He will save you. Lord, we ask, bless thy word. Bless it so that it is not easily forgotten. I confess my own tendency to not bear the weight of these words upon my life. I confess how easily we do that which Paul warned Timothy against, to be not entangled with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We're in warfare. We're in a battle. God, deliver us from a lack of vigilance and care. Help us Please help us. May you cultivate in our hearts a joyful anticipation 
of the return of Christ and a prayerful hope of a soon coming. Bless us in our fellowship in the week that lies before us, empowering thy church with the promise of the Holy Ghost to be holy and fruitful. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.